Hello and welcome to a new series of Battleground with me, Patrick Bishop, and Saul David. Well, this year marks the 80th anniversary of the most decisive, dramatic, and significant year of the Second World War. 1944 was when the Allies made their long-awaited launch into Northern Europe, when the Red Army began to push the Wehrmacht back to the borders of Germany, and when the war in the Pacific reached new levels of intensity. Between this, Saul and I know quite a lot about what was going on in this most crucial of years, having spent many years researching, thinking about it, and of course, the result of several books on this period. So our aim is, week by week, to examine the key events as their anniversaries fall due. We'll be diving into them in granular detail, updating you with the latest research and thinking on the event, and supplementing that with interviews with historians and experts. But we'll also be looking at the great themes that develop as the war progresses, how the Allies and their enemies adapt or fail to to changing circumstances. We'll be doing a bit of counterfactual speculation, what might have happened if things had gone differently. We'll also be looking under the surface of events to reveal the forces at work underneath the daily to and fro of battle, silently shaping the geopolitical landscape that would emerge when the fighting finally stopped. And we'll also be looking at the big personalities, whose characters and temperaments, even in this most modern of conflicts, still affect the outcome. It's going to be huge fun for us, a chance to share with you, the listeners, some of the knowledge we've accumulated over the years, but also to re-evaluate events and get a debate going, which in the tradition of Battleground, we'd love you, the listeners, to get involved in sending in your thoughts and questions. But to start off with, let's conduct a bit of a tour d'horizon of just what was at stake in 1944. Of course, the big event at the forefront of everyone's mind was the invasion of Northern Europe. Now, this is something that the Americans have been pushing for almost since the day they entered the war back in December 1941. The debate over whether to concentrate the effort in the Pacific, which is after all where the American war started with the attack on Pearl Harbor, or to do what Winston Churchill wanted and follow a policy of Europe first. Well, this had been settled in Churchill's favour, but once he'd won the argument in true Churchillian fashion, he then started pursuing his next agenda, which was to slow things down. He started dragging his feet. Various American proposals for an early invasion. In fact, as early as 1942, they were talking about the summer of 1942 for an invasion of Northern Europe. They were not backed by the Brits, who argued it was far too soon to go. They just didn't have the resources. They didn't have the shipping. They didn't have the manpower. In fact, that was a a pretty sound argument. But there was a lot of pressure on them, similar pressure coming from Moscow, where Stalin had never stopped complaining that while the Red Army were dying in their hundreds of thousands on the Eastern Front, the Allies were holding back. He'd been demanding the opening of a second front since 1941. And by 1944, it was clear that at last one was coming. Now, this was agreed at the Tehran conference, very, very important gathering of the big three, i.e. Roosevelt, Churchill and Stalin, the first time the three warlords had met in November and December, a three-day meeting in Tehran. Many big decisions were taken there, but one was going to be that the invasion was going to finally happen in May 1944. It turned out to be a bit later. And we often forget there was actually two invasions planned, one in the, in the north of France and one in the south. This was going to be on, on the Mediterranean front uh, with basically whatever could be patched together to make it a two-pronged attack. The actual location of the 
northern invasion, of course, it has yet to be properly settled on. But it was clear that this was going to be the greatest amphibious operation in the history of warfare, in the history of mankind. So obviously the man in charge of it would be carrying a burden. I think it would be fair to say no soldier in history had ever had to shoulder. So the decision as to who would be the supreme commander was absolutely crucial. Let's start off by just thinking about that a little bit. Do you think that the Allies chose the right man for the job, Saul? Yes, ultimately they did, Patrick. I mean, it was uh, potentially a poison chalice, as as, uh, you're kind of hinting at, for the obvious reasons that an awful lot could go wrong. We have this terrible tendency as readers of history and sometimes as historians to work on the basis of because uh, D-Day succeeded, it was bound to succeed. But that, of course, was absolutely not the case. And there were lots and lots of potential missteps. So the personality of the guy at the center of all of this, both planning it, but also keeping the reins relatively tight when the operation was underway was absolutely crucial. And they definitely picked the right man. So who was that man? Well, as as history knows very well, Dwight D. Eisenhower. And the odd thing about Ike, as he was known to uh, his close friends, is that he was a relatively junior officer, Patrick, at the beginning of the war, just a lieutenant colonel in 1940. And yet, by the start of 1944, when he was still only 51 years old, he's a full general, a four-star general, and he's already got quite a lot of operational experience under his belt. I say operational. I mean, he did, of course, cut his teeth with the invasion of North Africa, Operation Torch, which is a much misunderstood uh, operation and incredibly hazardous, albeit against the French North African colonies, but nevertheless, with also with a lot of potential for disaster and without anything like the same level of planning that D-Day had. And also with the difficulty of, of uh, a little bit like some of the Pacific War landings, where you had to take troops an awful long way across the sea. So a lot of the troops that landed in North Africa in in the end of 1942 came all the way from the United States of America. Most of the rest of them came from either the UK or Gibraltar as a kind of stepping stone. So, you know, it's a huge logistical effort. It was his first time really commanding large numbers of of troops in in a single major amphibious operation, which we've mentioned many times on the podcast, is far and away the most difficult thing to do in warfare. And yet he managed it very well, not not without any upsets, it should be said, because I think, as uh, most people know, there are a lot of setbacks in the North African campaign, including the Battle of Kasserine, where the American troops are given, you know, quite a severe bloody nose. They had actually had quite a few setbacks even earlier than that in the campaign. And this is a story I think I'd mentioned to listeners. I'm writing about currently in a book called Tunisgrad, which is about the Tunisia campaign. But overall, although it's not perfect, Eisenhower does very well. So what are his talents? Well, he was an incredibly hard worker. I mean, he basically works seven days a week at 12 hours a day, rising early, going to bed late and smoking incessantly. And this meant, of course, that he got quite ill at times. Uh, There was a time really when he was virtually order combat uh, just before the Casablanca conference at the beginning of 1943. But generally speaking, this huge energy that he put into his work paid off because he was a supreme organizer. And that's what really brought him to the attention of the US Chief of Staff, uh, Marshall, in 1940 and led to his meteoric rise. The other thing he was brilliant at is handling people of different personalities. So if you think just in North Africa alone, he had under him generals of the talent, but also the extreme temperament of George S. Patton, uh, Bernard Montgomery, Alexander was another one under his control. Kenneth Anderson, the original commander of the First Army, wasn't actually that 
talented a commander. But all of these people uh, and some of the some of the air and sea commanders, he had to balance their temperaments and keep the team moving forward. And the one thing Eisenhower always insisted on is that there would never be any battling between the different nationalities with which there's always a potential problem with coalition warfare. But that's, you know, he's very much a diplomat, isn't he, Eisenhower? Which, you know, like you say, that that's what you've got to be if you're overseeing this vast multinational force with all these quite egotistical, prickly personalities of the ones you mentioned. One you haven't mentioned is de Gaulle, who, of course, he also had to oversee in North Africa and did a very good job of actually picating him, something the Brits were, were not so good at, an incredibly difficult man to handle. But that, strangely enough, you know, that those diplomatic skills didn't actually recommend him to the Brits, did it? He's um, they were rather kind of sniffy about him, saying he's, you know, he's not a real fighting soldier. But that's exactly what was needed. The Americans are going to call the shots. But you know, I'm interested in the in the different soldiering styles. You've got, you know, his Eisenhower. He's, um, you know, socially speaking, he's he's a small town boy. He's born in Denison, Texas. And his British counterparts are, are, are really—they're quite like the Prussians. You know, they're a caste; they're a military caste. They—they they all marry into each other's families. They marry each other's sisters. They have the same interests. They're all into hunting, shooting, and fishing. And they're gentlemen, and they very much regard themselves as being a social elite. So they come up against these um, Americans and sort of look down their noses at them. I mean, the Americans quite rightly look back at them and think, well, you know, you haven't done terribly well so far in this war, have you? So why are you telling us how we go about pursuing this enormous challenge that lies ahead of us? Did, did you get much feeling that Eisenhower, when you were looking at Eisenhower, that he sort of resented the way he was he was regarded by the Brits? He um, he felt that the Brits basically felt that the Americans didn't know what they were doing. And, and to some extent, that was understandable, of course, because the British had been fighting in the desert since uh, 1940 and the Americans had just arrived. And as, I, as I've already mentioned, there were mistakes made from the beginning of, of what becomes the Tunisia campaign by the Americans, but also by the British too. And I think this idea that the all American mistakes were due to the fact that they were green, you see this continuously in, in comments made between uh, senior British commanders and also actually down the chain of command. But even Eisenhower contributed to this a little bit because he began to uh, believe some of the comments made by his senior British commanders, including Anderson, who I mentioned, who kind of was implying that some of the setbacks were due to inexperience. And it was only fair enough for Eisenhower, who was commanding his first major campaign himself in any event, and in fact, the first time he'd been in action in the Second World War, for him to actually be a little bit nervous and a little bit sort of unsure of himself. But gradually, slowly but surely, he began to pull the reins a little bit tighter. And he got some better people in place, truth be told. The original commander of two corps in North Africa was a man called Friedendahl, who made all kinds of errors, built himself a sort of bomb-proof headquarters miles behind uh, the front lines uh, and performed very poorly and was partly responsible for the defeat at Kasserine. But slowly but surely, Eisenhower began to get, get very good people in place. And yet, despite all of that, people like Brooke, who, you know, the very highly regarded chief of the Imperial General Staff, uh, regarded Eisenhower as not terribly effective. In fact, he, he sort of implied that, you know, in terms of his knowledge of strategy, he wasn't terribly good. So there was a lot of criticism of the Americans, a lot of it unfair, really, before they'd really had a chance to prove themselves at this stage of the war. Well, that's going to be the great uh, test, isn't it, of the alliance. So we'll be spending quite a lot of time looking at all those kind of aspects, but also the kind of social aspects are of interest to to both of us, aren't they, Saul? 
uh, one thing that I think was very significant was that the arrival of the Americans in Britain as they form up ready to to go across the water really had made quite an impact on on Britain and British society. You see these, you know, well-fed, confident, stylish people. I'm reminded of a wonderful description by John Keegan, the old uh, great military historian, my old colleague at The Telegraph when he was working as defence editor there. And John wrote about growing up in the West Country as a teenager, seeing the arrival of these Americans and his delight at seeing all these gleaming vehicles these very smart twill uniforms and comparing them to the sort of dented, sort of rather second-hand looking British kit. And of course, the uniforms, which weren't anything like as cool, these sort of scratchy serge uniforms. And I think people looked at America as a, you know, ordinary people looked to America and thought, why aren't we like that, you know, and wanted a future that made them more like Americans than a traditional British people, and I think we still feel that today to some extent. Another aspect, of course, is, you know, black faces. This is the first time you've seen large numbers of black faces moving around the place. Brits took to the black American soldiers uh, immediately. They were, they were welcomed in a way, actually, that their own white comrades didn't uh, make them feel at home at all. In fact, quite the contrary. So there's a lot, lots of stories of race riots and, and uh, the British taking the side of the new black arrival. So we're going to be digging into all that kind of thing, but also asking questions. You mentioned earlier, all about, you know, the risks involved in the operation. Just lay out some of the things that were at stake here in D-Day. Well, it's interesting that at the beginning of 1944, the plan was to land on three beaches. So, you you know, it's a, it's a tremendously difficult task to land on a defended beach and the whole of northern France, in fact, the whole of the seaboard around France and northern Europe was pretty strongly defended, not not just with sort of concrete emplacements, but also with a lot of troops. Now, they didn't have the best troops, of course, on the coast because they didn't know exactly where the Allies were going to come, but they had a lot of panzer divisions in reserve. And the uh, strategy was you're going to use those panzer divisions to go to the point of attack and you're going to try and prevent the Allies from actually uh, establishing a beachhead. We talked about the beachhead, Patrick, if you remember, in relation to what's going on on the left bank of the Dnieper. And the key is that you're able to get far enough inland so that you can actually protect the landing point. Uh, so it's that really crucial 24 hours, maybe 48, first 24, 48 hours. And if you don't get a strong enough lodgement and if the enemy counterattacks too quickly, you can be thrown off the shores. So what they very quickly discover in early 1944 is that those initial three beaches are not enough because you can't feed enough troops through those beaches in the first 24 hours. And that's when they came up with a very sensible idea of expanding to five beachheads, which is, of course, the five that we know well and the five that we used on D-Day itself. And and that was actually a really crucial move. But it just, just shows you just in the difference between three and five, you you, of course, need more landing craft and more more logistics to support an operation like that. But without those five beachheads, uh, it really could have been even closer run thing than it was at the time. We don't want to overstress the, the risks involved because, I mean, one great thing that you absolutely have to have for a huge scale amphibious operation like that is air superiority, preferably air supremacy. And we were pretty close to that point, weren't we, really? By that stage, the the Luftwaffe has been more, not a slight exaggeration, so it's been cleared from the skies, but it certainly has nothing like the resources that the combined might of the RAF and the USAAF can bring to bear on the situation. You've got the enormous bomber fleet of bomber command, of the RAF's bomber command, 
now very much against the wishes of, of Bomber Harris, of uh, Air Marshal Harris, who's uh, in charge of Bomber Command, very, very tough customer who um, believed the war could be won by bombing German cities flat, essentially. And he's right in the middle. When, when the actual overlord, is, of course, the operation is known as process begins, he's in the middle of his particular private war against uh, German cities. And is very, very annoyed when he's told, okay, you've got to divert all your bomber fleets to new targets, not in Germany, but in France. So uh, you're now going to be attacking the occupation infrastructure of the Germans, supply lines, railways, all the means that they could bring to deliver troops to block the landings. And as you say, it's all to get into a position where they can actually drive them back into the sea. So you've got all, all that now. After a lot of browbeating and arm twisting, he finally says, okay, his, his uh, crew's going to be used to, for the purpose of supporting the D-Day or preparing the battlefield for the, for the D-Day landing. So that's something, you know, the, the, all, if you read any of the German accounts of the actual event, they're constantly saying, where are the Luftwaffe? You know, just as the uh, British troops were saying in Dunkirk in 1940, where are the RAF? They were saying, well, the roles are now reversed. And um, you know, the Allied Air Force has pretty much had the run of the skies throughout the campaign. Yeah, and Ike himself has played a key role in all of that, Patrick. I think I mentioned Ike's organizational ability, his ability to, you know, to get on with people and to get the best out of his subordinates and also to pick the right people for the right jobs. He he made one or two errors in my view. I mean, he overpromoted Clark, who was an old friend of his, who commands in Italy. And we will discover as we work our way through the year that, you know, Italy was a hell of a slog. It's it's best known, of course, for the Monte Cassino battles, but all the way through the fighting in Italy, it's a it's a sort of brutal, slow, attritional warfare and Clark in my view wasn't the right man for the job and he had been protected by Ike but going back to the uh, Air Force decision it was Ike threatened to resign it was one of the sort of key moments in the lead up to D-Day Ike who's you know who's really the driving force behind the whole operation and he's threatening to to resign if the strategic bomber force is not used to knock out vital infrastructure, which uh, Ike knows and his planners know and Teddo, his air chief knows, could be used to uh, to counterattack, to get troops to the right place, to counterattack the initial landing. So it was an absolutely key moment. Uh, and he stood up strong because, of course, he could have just gone along with it and thought, well, you know, I'm not going to put my job on the line. But he was prepared to do that. Well, that theme of D-Day, of overlord, of all the preparation for this great, absolutely decisive operation will be a theme that'll be running right through the series week by week, month by month. It'll be interspersed with lots of other stuff because we've got it. This is a, a world war. There's lots of things going on at the same time and they all have a bearing on each other. We'll be talking about that in part two. Join us after the break when we'll be turning the searchlight onto Germany's developing nightmare on the Eastern Front and the titanic struggle being fought in the Pacific. Welcome back. We'll now turn to the Eastern Front. So where are we on January the 1st, 1944? Well, since the failure of German forces at Stalingrad and in Kursk in July to August 1943, Germans are no longer capable of mounting a major strategic offensive. Since then, they, they've been in almost constant retreat and by January the 1st are being pushed back in Ukraine and have crossed the Dnipro and retaken Kiev and are pressing up against the Polish border. By midsummer, they're ready to launch Operation Bagration, which was agreed at Tehran to coincide with Overlord and prevent forces being switched to the Western Front. 
Yeah, so this is something that's not, um, I think it's pronounced Bagration. Interestingly, it was named after a, um, a Russian histor- a general, wasn't it? A famous general. So, you know, once again, harking, like they're doing now, harking back to their past to, uh, to sort of justify or to inspire the present. Anyway, Bagration was a, it's not much known in the West. Um, this is a sort of something we're going to be trying to redress in this series of trying to sort of shift our listeners' understanding of the war onto a kind of more balanced axis, if you like. So, you know, what was happening in the East is at least as important at any time, often much more important than what's happening in the West throughout the course of the war. Um, I think in the in the case of 1944, it's more balanced, but still, Bagration is a, a huge operation. And as you say, it was agreed at Tehran that this would be launched at pretty much the same time as, as D-Day in order to prevent, to basically force the Germans to make decisions about where their troops are going to go, which are going to inevitably weaken them on the, both the east and on the western fronts. So that's a, a terrific story, and we'll be doing a special on that, uh, possibly with uh, our old friend Roger Morehouse, who knows a bit about it. But there's all sorts of uh, interesting things happening. I mean, one is this sort of huge stump in morale, isn't it? Uh, so you've got this moment when uh, even the most uh, enthous- previously enthusiastic generals are now thinking, you know, this is not looking good at all. Hence the um, plot that's been underway. But I think it's already just started at the beginning of the war. The, the original kind of concept is, is formed and it culminates in the July 20th plot to assassinate Hitler in the Wolf's Lair in East Prussia. Uh, so that's, that's a, a good one, isn't it? So there's plenty to, to look at there. Yeah, I mean the great question about the plotters. Uh, we're going to we're going to come on to Stauffenberg, and Stauffenberg actually first enters entered my consciousness actually in Tunisia, where he's operations officer for the Tenth uh, Panzer Division, and he's incredibly badly wounded around about the time of the Kasserine battle, very unluckily by an airstrike on the staff car he's driving in, and that of course is why he's only got one hand and one eye, and those are the reasons why the bomb plot probably didn't succeed in July 1944. But the really interesting question about Stauffenberg, who was quite an enthusiastic supporter of the war in the in the early stages, is, you know, whether or not he and the other conspirators have actually been driven to, uh, you know, the, to take this drastic act against Hitler because they're against the war per se, or rather, and I think this is much more likely, they don't like the direction the war is going. And actually, a lot of them are nationalists who, you know, who were quite happy while the war was being won. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, I think a lot of uh, mythologizing uh, has gone on about Stauffenberg uh, and the other plotters, Rommel included. Um, you know, this idea that there were the sort of noble Germans who somehow got conned into fighting uh, a war. Uh, I mean, as you rightly say, Stauffenberg and his ilk prosecuted it pretty enthusiastically. So we'll be trying to unpack all that. We mustn't forget what's going on on the southern front. Must we, as you mentioned earlier, saw, you know, the, the war in Italy in '44, beginning of '44, it settled down into a bit of a stalemate, hasn't it? We've had these successful landings uh, in Sicily in July the previous year, and then later on, you know, they jump off from Sicily into Salerno in the south in Reggio Calabria. So, but the momentum by now, by the start of 1944, the momentum has been lost, and as you said. The big sticking point is Monte Cassino. So the big fight at Monte Cassino begins in this month of January 1944. And it goes on all the way till May. It's not until May that Monte Cassino falls. 
and uh, Rome is only entered on the 5th of June, the day before D-Day. So even after that, the rest of the year is going to be a, a long, hard slog. Now, we know someone who's written brilliantly about this, and that's our old friend James Holland. We're hoping he'll be joining us to uh, look into that Italian campaign and illuminate it in his, uh, in his unique way. Now, we're moving on to your territory now, Saul, uh, turning to the Pacific. This really was an epic year, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, the big turning point of the Pacific, as I know I've mentioned on the podcast before, was Guadalcanal, but also Midway, and they both take place in 1942. 1943, not a huge amount happening. They're, they're still advancing, uh, certainly in New Guinea against the Japanese, and also through the Central Pacific. But things really begin to move up a gear, Patrick, as you say, in 1944. I mean, really, you've got to think about the Allies having two axes of advance, one from New Guinea on into the Philippines, which is going to take place really by armies led by MacArthur, who, of course, has been thrown out of the Philippines at the beginning of the war in 1942, at least at the beginning of the war as far as, far as the Americans are concerned. And he's absolutely determined that he is going to liberate Philippines. And on the other hand, the second axis of, of advance is through the Central Pacific. And this is really a Navy-led operation driven by Nimitz, who's the admiral in charge. And that is going to take a series of basically island hopping. So the next targets they've got in mind at the beginning of the year are the Marshall Islands in the, in the Central Pacific, but also this extraordinary action that takes place in New Britain for the Admiralty Islands. So that's part of the southern axes of advance. And, and that's really an attempt to isolate the huge Japanese naval base at Rabaul. They very sensibly, Patrick, decide not to assault Rabaul, which is protected by about 80,000 Japanese troops. And, and they come up with this very clever idea, eventually, because there are lots of uh, initial plans to assault the base itself. They come up with this very clever idea of isolating it. Therefore, they, they just need to capture all the vital area around it, including the far side of the island, an area called Cape Gloucester. And that's where the 1st Marine Division, which I've written about, as listeners will know, in Devil Dogs, they go into action to try and take the far side of the island. It's a huge island, 370 miles across. So we're not just talking about you know artillery far from one bit to the other. This is a massive island, and it's a very, very sensible plan. But this is the beginning of the advance through the Pacific that's going to get eventually to the Mariana Islands, uh, and that is Saipan and Taipan. And these are the islands, as some of our listeners will know, that were used to uh, launch bombing raids on Tokyo itself. So it really is getting close to the end game by the time they get to the Marianas. On that end game subject, we're, we're now getting into a situation where the American chiefs are wondering how are we actually going to bring this war to an end? Isn't that right, Solomon? You've got on Saipan, you've got this, uh, what I understand was the most fearsome Banzai charge of the Pacific War, where 3,000 essentially suicidal Japanese soldiers attack. Uh, a U.S. Army division. They overrun two battalions. Of course, it doesn't succeed, but you know that it just shows this degree of determination. And a little bit later, when Saipan actually falls, hundreds of civilians commit suicide rather than sort of face the prospect of occupation. So, this is isn't if I'm right? Isn't this when they start thinking? Well, what happens when we get to Japan? Well, does that mean the whole Japanese people are going to choose death uh, rather than surrender? And I suppose this underlines the kind of you know with the arrival of the atomic bomb, the two sort of situations sort of mesh, don't they? 
it does prefigure the events of 1945. You're absolutely right, Patrick. And and you will get increasingly determined, you, you could say fanatical defense, the closer you get to the Japanese home islands proper. The Japanese actually do learn something from Saipan. That is, Banzai attacks and defending the beaches, generally speaking, don't work. And their new tactic is to begin to uh, build very effective defenses in the terrain of the islands they're defending. So Peleliu, which is one of the big battles towards the end of 1944, is where they totally switched tactics and they built this incredibly formidable defensive system that they are going to hold to the finish. And they do exactly the same on Okinawa in 1945. So they do learn a little bit from uh, Saipan. But uh, on the other hand, as you, as you mentioned, Patrick, the Allies have no doubt that there is going to be an increasingly bitter war fought and an awful lot of civilians are going to die. So that when we do get to 1945, and obviously we're not covering it in the series per se, but we will be looking ahead to it. You very much get a sense from the Allied leaders, in fact, Truman says it himself that you know his fear that by not using nuclear weapons and by actually invading the Japanese home islands they're going to not only lose enormous numbers of allied casualties they're going to kill literally millions of Japanese soldiers and Japanese civilians which is something he he simply can't face and it justifies in his mind the use of the atomic weapons We've also got a massive um, naval battle, haven't we? The, again, barely known in the West, the Battle of Leyte Gulf in, in northern waters. Uh, the last big sort of battleship clash has already happened at the end of 1943, coming up soon, actually, the 80th anniversary um, of the Battle of the North Cape, which is where the last remaining really operational uh, Greaves Marine battleship, or some call it a battle cruiser, the Scharnhorst was sunk in a classic encounter, big ship encounter with the Duke of York and accompanying uh, home fleet ships led by Bruce Fraser. That was the last time we'll ever see anything like that. But in October uh, 44, you have this massive battle between the US Navy and the Japanese Navy in the Battle of Leyte Gulf with um, Japanese uh, kamikazes, incredible spectacle, a really, you know, epic event. We'll be having a good look at that as well. Yeah, and uh, actually, Patrick, another uh, very big sea battle, which is often forgotten, uh, is the Philippine Sea. And the Phil the reason the Philippine Sea is uh, is significant, and it takes place in August 1944, around the same time as the uh, as the action on Saipan and Tin and the islands of Tinian, is uh, because it's it's really considered to be the last big aircraft carrier battle of the Second World War, and in effect, it destroys uh, Japanese air power in the Pacific. They lose so many of their airplanes and their experienced pilots that they're never really again able to pose a serious threat. And that's one of the reasons why, moving on to uh, later Gulf, why they use kamikaze, because they no longer have the ability to bomb aircraft carriers with conventional fighters. They don't have the experienced pilots to do it and they don't have the planes to do it. So they actually use individual planes as flying bombs. And, you know, listeners may wonder, well, how on earth do you get people to agree to do that? But, you know, as we might have mentioned on the podcast before, the whole uh, attitude of the Japanese towards self-sacrifice and indeed suicide is very different than it is in the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition. Uh, and they see this very much as something that is justified. It's not morally repugnant. And indeed, it's something that both you and your family will be honoured by for doing. And, and so you see increasing numbers of people, frankly, signing up to be kamikaze, not just in the air. And they have a number of different ways of delivering these kamikaze weapons against the enemy. And there are no shortage of volunteers. Okay. Well, uh, I think that's given listeners, I hope, a taste of what there is to come in 2024. Lots of absolutely riveting stories and dramas uh, that we're going to be bringing you, uh, I hope, in a fresh way 
But not just the episodes, not just the incidents, but we're never going to be forgetting the great submerged developments that would shape the world that would emerge from the war. 